1791, President George Washington commissioned Major Linfant to lay out the nation's capital, to lay out Washington, D.C. And Mr. Linfant had the idea of a great church for national purposes. That's the phrase that he used, a great church for national purposes. It is the National Cathedral there in Washington, D.C., a most impressive cathedral. And it took about 200 years from Major Linfant's idea in the 1790s to when this church was actually completed. President Theodore Roosevelt was there when the construction began and, and gave a, a, a speech at the beginning of construction, and then it was ultimately finished during the presidency of George H.W. Bush. I am sad to say that at this magnificent cathedral, the Word of God is missing. I'm sad to say that at this magnificent cathedral, the Word of God is not proclaimed. Here's what I mean by that. The Reverend Gary Hall, who is the dean of the cathedral, says this about church. In my experience over the years, where people come together is in prayer practices. It's easier to have interfaith collaboration. Interfaith, that, that's a, that word's a problem. Interfaith collaboration about that than at the doctrinal level. Right now, your radar should be going up. Ding, ding, ding. Wait, 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 wait a second. At, and then at the doctrinal level, and, and what's going on there is he's saying, doctrine, that's, that's, that's not for us. He goes on, if I get people together and say, let's talk about God, we'll get an, an argument. But if I say, let's all pray together and experience the divine together in our own way. Experience the divine together in our own way. People can enter that in a much more creative and less judgmental way. There's so many things wrong with that statement. He goes on to say that Protestantism has made religion too mental. Not enough experience. You see a cathedral, but you don't see anything being done with it. I want to skateboard down it. I want, this, this is the reverend. I want to skateboard down the cathedral or have a paper airplane contest in the cathedral. The idea of doctrine or the mind is rejected here in the national cathedral and so they have implemented something very different something very different than the doctrines of the word of god they've implemented a program called seeing deeper and seeing deeper this is from their website in this program you are to experience a different cathedral perspective we clear the space you fill your mind we clear the space. In other words, we get rid of all the seats, all the pews, get, get, get those out. And you fill your mind with whatever you want to fill it with. Because everybody has their own experience. And if your experience takes you to God, well, well, good for you. And if your experience takes you to God, and it's different than hers, well, good for you. And mine is different than, your, than, than y'all's, well, good for me. That's the approach because doctrine has been excluded from the National Cathedral, and the National Cathedral really represents so many churches in America. The reason why the country is going down the toilet is because we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have rejected the Word of God. And now, 
we don't want head knowledge. Right? You go to church to get cured of head knowledge. Get head knowledge out of there. And now I'm dumb and in love with Jesus. I'm dumb and in love with Jesus because we come for an experience. I'm not necessarily talking about y'all. I'm talking about believers in general in the culture. They don't want doctrine. And so the National Cathedral says, great. Then let's have, as part of our seeing deeper experience, let's have yoga. Let's get rid of the pews. And let's bring in yoga instructors, a bunch of people that are half naked, and let's have a yoga experience in the church. And of course, yoga has as its origins in India from thousands of years ago, this, this demonic, these, these poses that are designed to, to mimic and to, so that the person can commune with these mythological creatures of India from of, of old, in other words, demons. But the National Cathedral says this is a way to see deeper. This is a way for you to fill your mind, to have an experience. Or as part of seeing deeper, they have no pastor, no Bible, no, no pastor at this event, no Bible, no Scripture. Open up the platform so that we can have Tai Chi instructors and we can have this kind of Eastern music and we'll have the Tai Chi activity. This is part of seeing deeper at the National Cathedral or as part of this program for experience, not doctrine. No, 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 doctrine. Not, not, not doctrinal principles of, of the Scripture. Let's open it up and let's have a reprom. If you didn't enjoy your prom when you're in high school, well, come to the National Cathedral and you can have another prom. This is part of seeing deeper. Or if you like, you can have a light show, beautiful light show, beautiful light show. And you can lie down on the ground and you can take pictures. And what is conspicuously missing from the National Cathedral, from seeing deeper, is the Word of God. It's the mystery. All these things that are happening at the National Cathedral, they're something. They're just not Christian. Let me say that again. They're something. They're just not Christian. Because Christianity is about the mystery. Christianity is about the mystery that is revealed in this age. It is the mystery of Christ. Christianity is a hope. And that hope is not in experience. That hope is not in emotion. And let me say, there's nothing wrong with experience, there's nothing wrong with emotion when it's in its proper context. When it's subject to the mind and the mind is influenced by doctrine, our hope is found in the truth, the doctrine of Christ. And so today we're going to see the mystery. We've, we've talked a little bit about the mystery because Paul's talked about it in Colossians 1, verses 25 through 27, but now he's going to unpack the mystery more. And this, uh, this morning, we're going to see as part of the mystery, God's rich glory for us in Christ. But in order to understand the mystery, you have to do something that is countercultural in Christianity. You have to leave your mind intact. Because so often in the churches, you walk into the church and the objective is to beep, turn the mind off and, and, and have an experience. But here, in order to understand the mystery, which all that means is something that was hidden and is now revealed, you have to actually think 
And God gave you a mind and me a mind. He gave believers in the Lord Jesus Christ a mind so that we could fill it with his truth. And after all, didn't Jesus say that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind? Mind. And we have to learn, if you want to use the word doctrine or principles or truth or knowledge, in order to do that. And so this morning is about knowledge knowledge and let me spend just a little bit of time reviewing where we left off because it's been a couple of weeks we saw last time colossians 1 verses 25 through 26 so let me read verse 25 of this church i was made a minister according to the stewardship from god bestowed on me for your benefit so that i might fully carry out the preaching of the word of god paul says he's a minister He's a minister of the church, and he's a minister of the church that he may fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. The minister of the church has a responsibility. That responsibility is to preach God's Word. That is the primary responsibility of a pastor, is to stand flat-footed in a pulpit and say what's in the book. It's not to do a light show. It's not to have photo opportunities for the people who want to do a reprom. It's not for entertainment. It's not for experiences. It's to say what's in the book. It's not to teach, to use the phrase of Paul in Colossians 2.8, it is not to teach philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men. And so in addition to what we just saw just a few minutes ago with respect to the National Cathedral, let me talk about a few other additional human traditions that are being taught in churches that have long ago abandoned the doctrine, the principles, the knowledge of the Word of God. False teaching number one, man is basically good. You're pretty good. And the problem is out there, not here. In order to... to improve ourselves we need to find inner peace because we're basically good the scripture says the opposite the scripture says in jeremiah seventeen nine, which we've all heard before the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick who can understand it what's happening there is the problem isn't out there the problem is in here we're the problem well maybe you more than me just kidding. I'm the problem and you're the problem. We are the problem. And the solution is found outside of us in the God who is, who has revealed himself in the text through principles, through knowledge, through doctrines. And so the world says, and let me include just liberal theology, liberal churches, they say that man is basically good and that we are basically good, but the scripture says the opposite. It says that we are desperately sick. The world, as part of human tradition, empty philosophy, empty deception, says, number two, that there are some boo-boos in the Bible. There are some mistakes in the Bible. It's nice. It's good. There's some good stories in here. There's some good recommendations in here. But liberal theology says it's not inerrant. It's not authoritative. It's not authoritative if there's an error in there. If there's one error in there, 
then our salvation is at risk. And so the Scripture, in contrast to the world's false teaching, says that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be mature, thoroughly prepared for all good works. But this is what is being taught in churches. Why? Why? Because they've abandoned doctrine. They've abandoned thinking and they've instead gone to experience. They've gone to emotion. And we're all going to think something. We're hardwired to worship God. We're all going to believe something. And the minute you check your brain off, you check your mind off, because you don't want doctrine, something else is going to fill it. The the, the master of deception is the devil. He is brilliant in his wickedness. And so if he can persuade you that doctrine is just prickly, it's just cold and ugly and head knowledge, then the minute he does that, you put that aside. And now you're susceptible to some other sort of experience and that's why we have these churches that are peddling experience and false teaching versus the doctrines of the bible principle number three in terms of false teaching is that all roads lead to god i mean that's really what the reverend there at the national cathedral is saying is you experience god your way and i'll experience god my way we'll all experience the divine in our each in in our own way But of course, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. That is discrimination. Can I use that word? I mean, that word has, as people people cringe at that word, right? Discrimination. Jesus discriminates. Jesus discriminates on the basis of truth. On the basis of doctrine, he says, I am the only way to God. Muhammad, Buddha, Hinduism, I discriminate against all those. I am the only way to God, Jesus says. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not encouraging improper discrimination. I'm not encouraging discrimination based on race, for example. I'm saying the world attacks Christian doctrine... And the way they do that is they get you to believe that doctrine is ugly. Doctrine is prickly. Doctrine is so rigid. Well, guess what? He's God and we're not. And the only way to worship Him, Jesus said, you worship God in spirit and in yoga. Right? In spirit and in light shows. In spirit and in Tai Chi. In spirit and in reprom. Is that what he said? You worship him in spirit and in truth. But if you don't know the truth, which is to say you don't know doctrine, then you are standing in the wind with no armor on. You are totally defenseless to the ways of the devil. And it is such a great phrase that is really a paraphrase from a theologian of old, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled is persuading the world that he doesn't exist. How can you even defend yourself against false teaching if you don't even believe that the master of false teaching exists? That's why the Scripture, the doctrine of the Scripture is so important. And then finally, one of the false teachings that is often peddled in churches 
in liberal churches, like the National Cathedral, is that we should avoid head knowledge. Look what Paul says, and we, we saw this a few weeks back, in Colossians 1, verses 9 through 10. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge. Does that mean head knowledge? Yeah. It means what's in your brain. So it means what's in my mind. Filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We need knowledge and then that knowledge works itself out. It expresses itself through actions, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. I'm not promoting knowledge, as Paul said it in Ephesians, in, in a cautionary statement. I'm not saying that we should have knowledge so that we get puffed up, so that we're arrogant. I'm saying we need the knowledge of the Word of God to protect ourselves. And the knowledge of the Word of God is what Paul is proclaiming here in our verses, Colossians 1, verses 25 through 27. The knowledge of the mystery, because the mystery is something that was previously unknown, that was previously undisclosed, and that is now disclosed. And look how he ends it in verse 25. He says, preaching, right? In verse 25, he ends, he ends with, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Now, if you're reading from an NASB, you'll see that preaching of is in italics. That's not actually in the text. That's not in the Greek. It's implied by the Greek. If you're reading it in the Greek, you would, just, you would see that he's received the stewardship to make full, to make complete the Word of God. To make full the Word of God. To make complete the Word of God. Now, that involves preaching, communicating the Word of God in Paul's case. But what he's doing is he is making complete the Word of God. What does that mean? When Paul says, I'm here to make full the Word of God, what does he mean by that? There has always been eternal power in the Word of God, or if I could use the phrase doctrine, in the doctrine of God, as opposed to the doctrine of demons. There's always been eternal, infinite power, and there always will be, in the Word of God. We see it back in Genesis. Right? God spoke. A word came from His mouth. Let there be light, and there was light. Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the, heaven, from, from the waters. In other words, a sky, and there it was. Let the waters below, below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. He's saying these things with a word. With a word. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees on, on the earth, bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. With a word, God creates because there is a measurable eternal power in the word of God and the word of God stands forever. Right? This principle of the eternal power of the Word of God goes from Genesis through Revelation. The Word of God stands forever. The flower fades. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the Word of God is forever. There are two things that last forever. Two things. The Word of God and people. The Word of God and people. People will last forever, either in heaven or in hell. And the Word of God will last forever so invest your time and your resources and your oxygen accordingly in light of those two forever things. How about Isaiah 55, 11? In Isaiah 55, 11, we see something 
that reveals a little more about the Word of God, and it's that the Word of God works. It functions for a purpose. Look what God said in Isaiah 55, 11, So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. The word of God is what Paul proclaims, the doctrine of God that the National Cathedral shuns. The word of God is designed to do a work in you and a work in me to transform our thinking so that our we are renewed in our mind and transformed into the image of the son of god the word of god is powerful for salvation look how peter says it for you in first peter 1:23 for you have been born again not of seed which is perishable but imperishable that is through the living and enduring word of God. And who is the Word of God? The Word of God is not just a little W, it's also a capital W, as we see in the prologue of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. Being. There's a reason why God is called the living God, because everything that exists is from Him. This is the capital W word. And the Hebrew word is, 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 the Hebrew word is dabar. In the Greek, the, the Greek word is lagos. Jesus, this is a reference to Jesus as the lagos. And the word of God, Jesus, the power of the word of God, Jesus exemplified when He spoke with Lazarus, right? I mean, Lazarus is in the grave and He spoke with Lazarus after, but first he called Lazarus out in, in John eleven forty three, and in John eleven forty three, with a word he makes the dead man walk. With a word he makes the dead man who's wrapped in a mummy walk out, and the mummy walk out of the tomb because there has always been eternal power in the word of God. But during this age, where we mock the word of God, little W, we mock. When I say we, I mean collectively. The world, liberal Christianity. There is mocking of the Word of God. The little w and the capital W Word of God. But when Christ returns, when the Word of God returns, it will not be so. Look how John says it in Revelation 19.13. When Christ returns, returns this this pivotal chapter in the scripture he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of god there is a day of reckoning there is a day of accountability and it's shown there in revelation 19 as one of the parts of the scripture where it's shown it's called the day of the lord where he settles accounts Paul proclaims the power of the Word of God through the mystery, through that which was previously undisclosed, and he proclaims it so that we may know it, so the Colossian believers would know it, and so that we 2,000 years later would know it. That is the mystery that Paul talks about in verse 26. Read with me Colossians 1.26 where he says, that is the mystery, right? At the end of verse 25, Carrying, carry out the preaching of the Word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to His saints. 
The mystery is the church age. We saw last time that mystery just means something that was previously undisclosed, something that was previously hidden and is now revealed. The mystery is the church age where the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile has been removed, where both Jew and Gentile have fellowship with the Jewish Messiah, with the Jewish Messiah, where Jew and Gentile have equal privilege and equal opportunity before God, where Gentiles don't have to become proselytes. We don't have to become converts to the, the Mosaic law. We do not have to become a proselyte like Ruth or like the Gentiles in Esther chapter 8. We don't need to follow the law. If you want to have bacon with your eggs in the morning, go for it. If you want to pick weeds on Saturday in your flower bed, go for it. If you don't want to uh, uh, provide a sacrifice through the Aaronic priesthood, we don't have to do that anymore. Why? Because there's a mystery. There's something that was previously hidden and is now disclosed. It's that Yahweh would come in the flesh and Yahweh would fulfill the law as a man. And so this mystery is about a stewardship. That's what Paul says here in verse 26. It's a stewardship. In the, the, the stewardship that he's talking about in verse 25 and the mystery that he's talking about in verse 26 is that he is a steward of the new stewardship. He's an administrator of the new administration. He's a minister of the new dispensation, the church age, and there's a new set of rules. There's a new set of rules. We're not under the Mosaic law anymore. We're under the law of Christ, Galatians 6.2. And God had previously hidden this age from prior generations, and so he now reveals it through the apostle, through the Gentiles. So then we get to our topic for today, which is the mystery, which is verse 27. The mystery of God's riches, his rich glory for us. Read with me Colossians 1:27. To whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Look at that phrase, make known. Right? He says, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery. Knowledge is a very rare commodity. People feign to have knowledge. They act like they have knowledge when they don't. Knowledge is very rare. It's kind of like the, the chief in the old obscure reservation in Montana. And this chief was with his tribe, and the tribe asked the chief, is it going to be a cold winter? And the chief, not wanting to, to reveal that he really couldn't tell, foretell the future, he goes and he calls the National Weather Service, and he calls the, the forecaster, and he says, is it, tell me about the, this winter. And the forecaster says, we think it's going to be a cold winter. So the chief goes back to the tribe, and he says, it's going to be a cold winter. So the tribe starts gathering firewood. And they gather firewood, and the chief says, you know what, I think I'm going to double-check this. So he calls the, the forecaster, and he says, are you sure it's going to be a cold winter? And the forecaster says, we're more certain than before that it's going to be a cold winter. So the chief goes back to the tribe and says, it's going to be a cold winter. So they double up their efforts to collect firewood. And the chief thinks, one last time I'm going to check with the forecaster. And so he calls the National Weather Service one last time, and he talks to the forecaster. He says, are you sure it's going to be a really cold weather? Cold winter, and, and the forecaster says, we are more certain than ever. This is going to be the coldest winter in years. 
And the chief says, well, how can you be so certain? Because the Indians are collecting firewood like crazy. (laughs) Knowledge is a rare commodity. And Paul wants you to have it. Not so that you're cocky about it. So that it transforms you. And so in verse 27, he wants you to have the knowledge of the mystery. The knowledge of that which was previously undisclosed. The idea that Yahweh, the one who in Genesis 1 spoke creation into existence, would humble himself and come as a baby who needed his mama to change his diapers and grow as an as a toddler and then an infant and then a teenager and then a man and would hang on a cross to pay for your sins and my sins was undisclosed and unthinkable in the Old Testament. They understood that Messiah would suffer. And they understood that Messiah would would be divine, but they didn't understand how that would work. And the idea that Messiah, through Messiah... Yahweh in the flesh, you would be united, we as Gentiles, or if there are any Jewish believers here, praise God if there are, if the, the prophets would have, would have thought of that, they, they, they would have been baffled by, by that idea because it was hidden to them. The idea that Gentiles would be united with the Jewish Messiah and that Yahweh would come as a man and make your destiny His destiny and His destiny your destiny, except for your sin and my sin. That idea was hidden from past ages and Paul is so pumped about it that he comes to disclose it in knowledge so that the Colossian believers would know and so that we would know. And he expands on this concept of mystery in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 7, we read this there. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. There's a lot of similarity between this passage, between what Paul said here and what Paul said in our passage, Colossians 1.27. Here in 1 Corinthians 2, it's the same mystery. It's the same mystery, the same undisclosed knowledge, the same undisclosed doctrine that Paul is revealing in Colossians 1.27. Because in 2 Corinthians 2, remember he starts this chapter with, I come to preach one thing alone, Christ and Christ crucified. That's the mystery. The mystery, what was previously undisclosed, what God hid from prior ages, is Christ. Now, in, in the Old Testament, people were saved the same way they're saved now, by grace through faith in the Lord. But who Messiah was, that He'd be fully God, fully man, was something that was undisclosed to them. And so the mystery is not the wisdom of the age, Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 6. It's not the wisdom of the age. The wisdom of the age, the spirit of the age today, is to avoid doctrine. It's to seek experiences. It's to fill your mind with whatever you want to fill your mind with, because you're God. That's the wisdom of the age. You're God with a little g. We're all God. God's everywhere. God's in the trees. God's in the rocks. God's in the mountains. God's in the rivers. We're all going to experience the divine. That's the wisdom of the age. 
But of course, the Scripture says there is but one God and there is one access to God, and that is through the God-man, Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is marching towards is that the mystery is not about ink and paper. The, not, the mystery is not about letters. The mystery is about a person. That's the whole mystery that Paul is working up towards. The mystery that Paul is proclaiming is a person. And that person then reveals Christ, reveals Himself through His apostles, through knowledge, doctrine, if you will. And so the whole mystery is about a person. That's what Paul is emphasizing here. And in this person, we see the revelation of God. Paul says in verse 7 here on the screen of, of 1 Corinthians 2 that this, is, that this was before the ages, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, right? The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages. You're not plan B. The church is not plan B. God had planned this incredible thing that you would be united with Christ, that you would be, let me say it differently, that you would be united with the God-man. We get too used to that. We've heard that too many times. I think the devil slides into our churches and gets us used to these ideas that you are in union with God, with the God-man, something that was foreign, unknown, undisclosed, hidden from past generations. This is the mystery that God designed before the foundation of the world. And you've got to love the phrase at the end of this verse. To our glory. Really, you can, it, 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 looking at the Greek, the, the, the word there can function as to our glory or for our glory. It's the same idea. This is for our glory. For our glory. This mystery of Christ is for our glory. And we say the, see the same thing in our passage in, in Colossians, right? In Colossians 1, 27, we see this phrase, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory the riches of the glory. Glory here, the better translation, I believe, is glory is really an attribute of riches. In other words, I think the better translation is glorious riches. Glorious riches, which is the way the NIV and the way the NET has it, so that it would read this way, to whom God will to make known what is the glorious riches of the mystery. Riches. Paul's not talking about dead presidents. He's not talking about cash. He's not talking about mansions. He's not talking about red Corvettes. He's talking about things much more valuable than that. And if God has given you those things, well, praise God for that. There's nothing wrong with wealth, with material wealth. Use it for God. Paul's talking about something that is eternal wealth, forever wealth. It's the Greek word plutos, which means wealth, riches, or abundance. In Ephesians 1, 7, he says, the riches of God's grace. Romans 9, 23, he says, the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. So grace is wealth. Mercy is wealth. Do you, do you think of it that way? Do you think of the grace of God and the mercy of God as riches? Or do you think of it as something that you're entitled to? Have we been so infected by the spirit of the age that we have an attitude of entitlement? Or do we approach the grace and mercy of God like that? 
not caring that our mouths are wide open, dumbfounded? Do we approach it in awe and wonder? Or do we approach it with, you're darn right I, I got grace and mercy. I'm entitled to that. Paul is amazed by it. And he wants us to be amazed by it. And so he uses the same word of uh, Plutus, riches in Ephesians 3.8, the unfathomable riches of Christ. Colossians 2.2, 2, the wealth, Plutus, that comes from understanding. And so the glorious riches of the mystery are about doctrine. Doctrine. The doctrine of God. In other words, the knowledge of Christ. And that's why Paul says in our verse towards the end of verse 27, which is Christ in you. That's the mystery. The mystery is that Yahweh permanently indwells you. What did Jesus claim as His title? I am the same title. That's, that's the covenant name of God. I am the same I am that spoke to Moses in Exodus 3. He claimed I am, and that's why the Jewish leadership picked up stones immediately to try and stone Him because they knew exactly what He was claiming. He was claiming to be Yahweh, and they didn't believe Him, so they convicted Him of blasphemy and that was the reason for his for his death for his execution and so the mystery is that Yahweh would permanently indwell Gentiles the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob permanently indwells Gentiles and Jews both remember the new covenant Exodus 36 there it says God says I will put my spirit within you well Exodus 36 is a promise to the house of Israel. Excuse me, uh, Ezekiel 36. That's a promise to the house of Israel. How about Jeremiah 31, where you have the new covenant there as well? That's a promise to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So the, in the Old Testament, they understood the promise that God would indwell Jews, Jewish believers, but the idea that, God, that Yahweh would indwell Gentiles, what? Now, the minute I say that the, that the new covenant is given to the house of Israel and given to the house of Judah, you need to be thinking, well, what did we just do in communion service? Right? In communion service, Jesus says, this is the new covenant of my blood, which is given for you. And so... The mystery is that we as Gentiles enjoy some of the blessings of the covenant, of the new covenant. Not all the blessings, like there's a land blessing that's specific to Israel. But the mystery is that we enjoy some of those blessings of the new covenant, a covenant that is given to Israel. And so that's why it was hidden and undisclosed. That's why we say undisclosed in ages past. The mystery is that the Jewish, Jewish Messiah resides in you. And through faith in the Jewish Messiah, actually all three members of the Trinity reside in us. The mystery involves the revelation of the Trinity. Right? I mean, in Genesis 1, where it says, where God says, let us make man in our own image. Or in Isaiah 6, where God says, where Yahweh says, who shall go for us? You see the plurality of God, but the Trinity is not, the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity is not fully unpacked for us 
until Yahweh comes in the flesh, until God the Son comes in the flesh, and when He reveals Himself, then He reveals the other two members of the Trinity. And so in the Old Testament, you see these glimpses of the plurality of God, but you can't really say that the Old Testament fully reveals the triune nature of God. That doesn't come until God the Son comes in the flesh and reveals Himself, and by revealing Himself, the mystery, He also reveals the other two members of the Trinity, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. So as part of the mystery, we have the revelation of the Trinity, and so we shouldn't take this mystery for granted. God permanently indwells all believers. You! And me. And that's something foreign to the Old Testament. Now, they had the temporary indwelling of the Holy Spirit, like Saul. King Saul had the temporary dwelling of the Holy Spirit, but in 1 Samuel 16, 14, the Spirit departed from Saul. So it was just temporary. Or Paul. Paul had the temporary indwelling of the Spirit after he engaged in, in adultery with Bathsheba. He prayed in Psalm 51, 11, don't take your, do not take your spirit from me because there the indwelling of God in believers was a temporary thing. The indwelling of the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, was temporary. Well, not anymore. That's part of the mystery. The Part of the mystery is that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit indwell you. And I fear that we have gotten so used to that that we don't care. That we've gotten so used to that, we've heard it so often, that it's ho-hum for us. This is the mystery that blows Paul's mind away, and he is so pumped to take it to those who have never heard it, to take it to the Gentiles, because he is the apostle to the Gentiles. And so he has in this passage, he ends this passage, Colossians 1.27, with this beautiful phrase, the hope of glory, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Hope. This is the third time that Paul has used hope, the word hope, the Greek word elpis, in this book. In Colossians 1.5, he said, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, the gospel. And what's the gospel? It's faith in Christ. So what's the hope? The hope is Christ, or in Colossians 1.23, the hope of the gospel, or here in our passage, Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Our hope is in a person. Our hope is not in yoga. Our hope is not in a light show. Our hope is not in an experience. Our hope is in a person. It is in the Jewish Messiah. That's where our hope lies. And you will share the glory of Christ now, when I say that, you should, you should say, wait a second. If Christ is fully God and fully man, then am I saying that we're going to share the glory of God? I mean, Isaiah 42.8 says, I am Yahweh, that is my name, and I will not share my glory with another. So what's going on? I mean, is Paul making a mistake? Is Paul making a boo-boo? Does he not fully understand the Scripture? No. No. That's not what's going on. Because Christ is the God-man, we will share His glory because we're in Christ. 
positionally in Christ. There's a difference here. In Isaiah 42.8, where, where God says, I am Yahweh, that is my name, and I will not share my glory with another. That's in the context of idols. God says, I am a jealous God. Not jealousy in the form of a sin. God can't sin. Jealous, jealous in the sense that He guards His glory. His glory is for Himself. It is His glory, not for any other image. And we have all kinds of idols today. We've got money, we've got pleasure, we've got, we got entertainment, we've got all kinds of idols today. We're much more, we, we, we think that we're much more sophisticated than, than those of old who had wooden idols or metal idols. But the context of Isaiah 42.8 is idolatry, and God says, I won't share my glory with another. But here with Christ, we're in the God-man, positionally in Him, and He is in us. And so because we are identified with Him, we share His glory. Look how Paul says it in, later in Colossians, Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be, will be revealed with Him in glory. Or John 17, 22, Jesus said, the glory which you have given me, He's talking to the Father, I have given to them. Jesus has given the glory that the Father gave to Jesus, He's given that to you, that they may become one just as we are one. Jesus is saying, just as, as the Son is, is, is united with the Father, we are united with Him. And as the Father has given the Son glory, the, the, the Son has given us glory. And part of His glory is that we, part of the glory that we will share with Jesus is that we will share His authority. Look how the writer of Hebrews says it as we close this morning. And He is the radiance of His glory. He, Christ, is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of His nature, of the Father's nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power, eternal power in the word of God. When He had made purification of sins, He, Christ, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, and then Jesus says in Revelation 3.21, He who overcomes, I will grant to Him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with the Father on His throne. This is a statement of authority. Throne means authority. And Jesus is saying, the one who overcomes, I will share my authority, which is part of his glory, with him. Now, who's the overcomer? Is it the one who does good works? And, and by doing good works, God says, you're justified? No, there's no such thing. Because our works are like a filthy rag. The overcomer, all you have to do is look at what the same author, the one who wrote little a, little author with a little a, the one who wrote Revelation is the Apostle John. He also wrote 1 John, and there he says, Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. What is the point? The point is that we will share, as part of sharing in the glory of Christ, the mystery that we are united with the God-man, we will share in His authority, the one who has accepted Christ for the forgiveness of His sins, for the forgiveness, for the forgiveness of her sins. We will share in the glory of Christ because we're in Him, He's in us, and we will share in His authority. This is the mystery that was hidden in past ages. This is the mystery that God planned before the foundation of the, of the world because you are of extreme value to Him. You are not a historical accident as the spirit of the age wants you to think, the product of a random collection of molecules. You are His plan A. You are of extreme value. So live like it. 
The doctrine of the Word of God is to transform you because it gives you purpose and meaning in life. And very soon we will stand before our Maker, maybe tonight. And you have a beautiful calling. Being in the God-man and the God-man in you, that is the mystery, the doctrine that we must learn and live by it. Live humbly by that truth. Let's close in prayer. Father, we praise you. We come to you as humble, broken sinners, and we praise you for your mercy and for your grace, and we wonder at you. We praise you for your love that you would plan for us and design us in eternity past, design an age where we would be united with you, that you would send your Son to add humanity to his essence, to pay a debt that he didn't owe because we owed a debt that we couldn't pay. And we praise you for all of that. Challenge us by it. Challenge us to understand your word, to live by it, and to bring honor to your name. We pray these things in the name of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ himself. Amen.